0: It's a long passage, but I I think uh, the best way that I can, uh, with the Spirit's help, make this clear is to divide this up into sections. Uh, The first section I'm covering is the first 23 verses. Uh, Since it's so much, I'm just going to put that into one point, which is just that God wants your heart. God wants your heart. And then we're going to kind of ask a question about the last story that we just heard about the... Uh, Syrophoenician woman uh, about why, why is Jesus so mean to her, at least initially. And, and uh, we're going to talk about that in this section, that I, the second section called uh, uh, that I titled God Hides. And that's uh, going to uh, unpack um, a passage that Jesus references. And then I think all of this kind of really sets up what Jesus actually applies in the first 23 verses in his own teachings, he actually applies and lives that out in this last story in verses 24 to 30 um, and, and it's something that we then can apply and, and I, I called that last section, are, are You Desperate for Jesus as Lord? So uh, the, this first section, uh, the first 23 verses, that's also actually just split into three parts just to make this as clear as, as possible. It's really just, you just addressing three, three things. One is unclean hands, second is this thing called Corban. And third is unclean food. Okay, so we'll unpack that first. And this is really under the main uh, first point of God wants your heart. That's the overall uh, message I think that we we get from that. God God wants your heart over your works. God wants you to be with him before you do things for him. And that's a common theme, I think, that uh, at least when I've preached from uh, my sections on Mark, that it seems very clear that Jesus seems to be emphasizing that. Uh, the context of this, uh, last week we ended uh, with the feeding of the 5,000, so we skipped a little bit of uh, the Jesus walking on water and additional healings that he does. And so this comes right after that, where the Pharisees hear about this and they decide to come. And then once again, the, the, the scribes, who are just the teachers of the law, also are sent from Jerusalem to investigate what Jesus is doing. Uh, I think it seems like they are concerned about all the popularity Jesus is getting, and they're trying to see if there's some way they can see some way that he's messing up so that they can try to put some holes in his reputation. It's almost like uh, if you played sports, uh, those that uh, made, did, a, did a fantastic athletic play. Only to get a, a ticky-tack foul, uh, erase all of that. And, and they're looking for something that will be able to erase Jesus' ministry. Because Jesus is a threat to their sense of order, their, their control, their rules. And as a quick dive into our own lives, is, is, isn't that true? Often Jesus is a threat to our sense of order and control and our rules. Uh, You think about when you look around and and how you see some people raise their hands in worship and if you're not very comfortable with that, uh, how somebody who is moved by Jesus could be a threat to your own sense of what is proper, what is comfortable. You think about how certain people pray and, and that's a very easy way of testing how comfortable we are with the one that cannot be controlled by us. By one that is lord over all of that. Uh, I even think about how we understand or experience or have experienced healing in our lives. That that are we are we more concerned about our own ritualistic ways that that should happen, over the possibility of Jesus as Lord, and He can do that however He wants to. Do we we talk like God is important to us, but we live otherwise? that that this passage is really pointing that our hearts are often elsewhere. That that this dialogue here is actually Jesus' longest conflict speech in, in the book of Mark. And he's not talking about like hygienic cleaning, like when uh, Serena and I run after our kids to make sure that they wash their hands before eating dinner. They're not talking about that. They're just talking about ritual. It's a ritualistic cleansing it's actually talking about when you come back from the marketplace, uh, which was considered dirty instead of a place of ministry. It's how for the Pharisees, how, how much water do you have? Do you use? How do you cup or put your hand in a fist? How do you cleanse it in a proper way to be acceptable before God? How do you pour the water into the basin? And what kind of basin do you use? It, it, it kind of spread to this elaborate addition to kind of fill in the gaps of what started from the Bible, but then they added on a whole lot of other things in their own ideas or their own rituals. That The Pharisees wanted to be the holiest of anyone by extending this idea of washing from not just the the priests, as was written in Scripture, but extending it to all people of how you should wash in a ritual way. And it's not just in the temple, but it's everywhere that you go. It's, it's easier to do things like washing your hands to be clean than it is to actually work on what's inside your heart, right? It, it's easier even for those of us who follow Christ to want to do things like preach or go on missions or perhaps even evangelize for some of us than to actually be still, to be with Jesus, to follow him and let him make us become. You see Jesus called these people these Pharisees and the scribes. He called them hypocrites, right? We know that that's another word for a pretender. Back in the old days it was talking about an actor in a play who wears a mask, which ironically, interestingly, Jesus actually plays actor at this last story again as well, but we'll come back to that. What what Jesus was getting at was they were hypocrites in the sense that they were inconsistent between their words and their action. That in God's law, washing hands were supposed to allow one to be close to God. But what Jesus is saying that all this ritualistic washing is actually causing their heart to be far from God. And ironically, they did not see that they were as close to God as any of us could ever possibly be in the flesh and yet missed God in the flesh completely. They they weren't concerned if their hearts were truly clean, but they were concerned if people obeyed their rituals. Jesus rebuked this outward show of religious behavior without having a heart that is yearning for God. External ritual is not the same as internal transformation, right? Doing things on the outside cannot cleanse our heart. In verse 8, Jesus talks about uh, this commandment, that you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. It's singular in the Greek, so Jesus perhaps may be saying that you have to let go of this greatest commandment. You know, in Deuteronomy 6, Says, now this is the commandment you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That they were so focused on their own tradition that they left that greatest commandment. Then Jesus talks about this idea of Corbin, and uh, Corbin is just uh, a word signifying what is dedicated to God. It, it basically allowed Uh, someone to legally exclude your parents from all of your earnings or all of your possessions because you dedicate that gift to God. And what it started to really encourage was this selfishness for people to be able to keep your own possessions and to use your own possessions until you died. And once you died, it was then dedicated to God. So it didn't require an immediate sacrifice, but it just allowed you to immediately not give it to anyone else like your parents, so you could use it yourself. And this is what Jesus rebukes. He rebukes, again, these external actions that don't have a consistency with a heart internally that is devoted to God. That they made human traditions greater than God's law. That they were more concerned with what people thought than what God thought. They wanted to follow this secondary law of keeping your vows, once you dedicated this to God, over the primary law of one of the Ten Commandments to honor your parents and the greatest law of all, to love God and your neighbor, right? And this is what Jesus says at the end of that when he says in verse 13, thus you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And then this third section, Jesus talks about unclean foods. And it it seems like this uh, verse 15 is kind of the main point. Jesus says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But it's the things that come out of a person are what defile him. That outward religious acts have no value without a transformed heart that loves God. I remember... My, my three-year-old niece, uh, when, my niece, sorry, when she was three years old, um, she was uh, running around uh, and my, my late sister was on an oxygen tank while she was losing function in her lungs and she was pretending to chase after her. And I remember one time she, she, my, my three-year-old niece turned around and asked my, my sister, am I beautiful, mommy? And I remember my, my, my sister telling her, you know... Calissa, it's most important to be beautiful on the inside. And it's talking about this heart that's the center of one's being, that that includes your mind, your emotions, your will to act or to not act. That an unclean heart is much worse than unclean hands or eating unclean food. That Jesus is getting at, if your heart is clean, you can eat anything, and this is in contrast to the Pharisees who see things as unclean from only the outside, from what you touch or who you perhaps even hang out with as Jesus hung out with people like tax collectors or prostitutes. So Jesus sees being unclean is from the inside. It comes from in our heart. It's our motives and what we value. First Samuel 16 says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then he ends this section with 13 moral problems. The first seven are plural. They're, they're repeated actions. Uh, the last six are singular, uh, kind of talking more about the attitudes. And, and we can tell the state of our hearts, Jesus is saying, by what comes out. That if we sin, it's not necessarily due to external circumstances. We can tell if when we sin, it's that our heart is not right with God. And and Jesus even goes more graphic. I I read this a couple times just to make sure and I had to look up commentaries to make sure that he's really talking about uh, what I thought he was talking about in verse 19, that since it enters not his heart but his stomach and it's expelled, it's what it sounds like, that that Jesus is talking about, you know, what what happens in your digestive system and is expelled into the toilet. He's talking about uh, what my kids like to talk about in terms of poo, that uh, he's making a point that it's not food that goes into you and it doesn't affect your heart that makes you unclean. But it's us. It's why we need Jesus. So when we pray, that, that we, we don't pray just that he removes these circumstances from our lives, but we pray that he changes our hearts. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart, God says, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That we must fix this heart problem from the inside out and not with more religion rules from the outside in. Uh, you know, even with things that our church is trying to do uh, with regard to uh, putting forth a code of conduct for our leaders... We, we acknowledge fully in discussing uh, this yesterday with some of our ministry and small group leaders that we, we know that, that that alone can't ultimately solve our church issues, right? It's that God wants your heart. Second point is this. God hides. God hides. And I, I want to jump ahead a little bit uh, with this to talk about the end of the story. When we say that God hides we look at uh, things from the passage that uh, we, we see that Jesus uh, was speaking plainly, but his disciples were very confused. They, they said in verse 17, uh, Mark says that they asked him about the parable. But if you look at it, it's not really a parable. Jesus is just speaking plainly. You know, He's talking about poo and he's talking about food, and they don't understand what he's talking about. Um, and yet, later on... Jesus then talks about, in verse 24, the start of that story, that he didn't want anyone to know that he had entered this house and he couldn't be hidden. And that that word is interesting. And and when we look at the context and, and you read the story, that when this woman with this little daughter is begging Jesus for help, Jesus seems to not pay attention to her initially. We know in the Matthew narrative, he ignores her first. And then when he finally does speak to her, he, he, he calls her a dog. And, and he, he still doesn't acquiesce to her request. The, the question that I was wrestling with, why is Jesus so mean to this woman, who's, this mother who's just asking, begging for help for her little daughter, that clearly Jesus has the power to be able to heal and cast out this demon. Why? Why is Jesus like this? What is he doing? I, I think when you look at what Jesus cites to the Pharisees, you know, he quotes from Isaiah. And if you look in the book of Isaiah, he quotes from chapter 29. And it says this in, in verse 13. Uh, he, he quotes from this, and it, it, it reads in Isaiah, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. We, we covered that. But then it was interesting, the next verse, in verse 14 of Isaiah 29, it says this, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder— and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. There's that word again. Therefore, it's going to be hidden. His, his truth will be hidden. Why, why did Jesus speak in parables? This was asked of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. And he responds so that people can, they can hear and not They can see and not see. That for the outside, all these things will be hidden. If you think about the stories that we heard, why does Jesus pretend that he, he doesn't know who touched him and has to ask, Who touched me? Why, when the disciples come to him frantically, like we heard last week, asking to send the people away, why does he say, You send, you give them something to eat? Why does, in the story we didn't cover in, at the end of chapter 6, why does Jesus walk on water and decide to walk on by the disciples as if he's going to just walk on by and they're just going to go on, you know, fighting and roar, uh, rowing against the wind? Why does he do these things? He, Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Who earnestly seek him. I think that there is a a story that I should share with you. Um, I'm just very curious. In this crowd, my my wife warned me that this uh, might be just too old for, for anyone. But it's a classic has anyone seen the real Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? The real one. The real one. With uh, not the Johnny Depp one. Who's, who's seen that? Okay. Good. All right. Uh, this is okay. So Serena's wrong. Actually, I have some some company here. All right. Good. So you know the story, right? So Willy Wonka is this owner of this chocolate factory, and he sends out how many golden tickets? Five. Five golden tickets out for the lucky winners. The lucky children that will be able to get what? they will be able to get a tour of the factory, and they will get a lifetime supply of chocolate. Then there is this evil guy named Mr. Slugworth that comes, and there is this everlasting gobstopper, which is the the next biggest thing that will take off from his factory, that uh, that, that this evil guy comes to try to ask that if you get this, uh, which I think each of those uh, five winners get, if you give it to me, You know, you know, he's trying to bribe them. I'll, I'll give them whatever you want. You know, in order to get that, and so um, you know the story that uh, Charlie is the one that ends up at the end after the other four get sucked into different things, and then uh, he's the one left. And so I think we have it queued up. If you can play this, I think this helps answer this question of why was Jesus so mean? This little boy wins. This last line was that he, he, he was being told, you won, because the creator of this story was looking for the heart of a child to turn over his entire kingdom to. It wasn't just to give him a tour of the factory. He wanted to turn over his entire factory, his kingdom, to one with the heart of a child. You know, there's something that this word hidden from Isaiah that made me think about, and even in Mark Chapter Seven, when Jesus is trying to hide that uh, in Matthew eleven, uh, hidden is emphasized in this verse that uh, during my class on preaching, it, it changed everything of how I viewed how to approach preaching that you're, you're, I, I learned that in preparing for sermons that uh, t- I, I had to learn to repent from this idolatry of thinking to actually think that you can teach everything that there is to know in a passage (laughs) that God's word is so deep that for you to think that you can teach everything that you can do you're you're kidding yourself and and to be looking at loads and loads of commentaries that 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 for me I'd repent this is all idolatry (laughs) that that sometimes God will even continue to hide things from you so that you don't think too highly of yourself and so it, Matthew 11:25 this is the verse that, that impacted me at that time, Jesus declared, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and Earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, little children." Matthew 11:25. That, that you must come to Jesus in humility and in faith like a little child to be able to understand. Otherwise, God continues to hide from the wise scholars impressed with their own learning or by their own effort or their own brilliance or their own study. That when I've gone to... Uh, I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but unfortunately, when I, when I went to some of these uh, Christian lawyer conferences uh, or meetings... They were some of the most dry, boring, devoid of the spirit meetings I've ever been to. Um, And I'm sorry, I I was part of one of the boards, so that was my fault as well. But it's so different from humbly begging God, this posture of begging for more of his spirit, that the dependent real faith of a child, he reveals his truth to, but then he hides from the self-sufficient those who have external actions without any heart. That it's a, he puts a veil to the casual listener, and yet he reveals to true followers that outsiders can only see parables and riddles when Jesus is talking. And it's only the insiders that knows the secret. I love that in Mark 5, if you remember the the little daughter that was raised, Jesus actually talks about and and describes her as sleeping to the crowd who laughs at him. And I love that because later on, when she actually does come alive, they probably thought, oh, maybe she was sleeping. But then for the insiders, his closest three and the parents that he brought in with her, they know that Jesus is actually meaning that when you believe in Jesus— You only sleep the sleep of death, but it's not final. You're only sleeping. Death is just a temporary thing on this side of the fence, right? Jesus is asking, do you love him with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength? Do you have this intimacy with God? Otherwise, he hides from those who are not close to him and are just doing things on the outside for him. What is it like to be with Jesus instead of just doing things to be religious? He hides to draw out childlike faith. He, he acts to test faith. And he reveals to children who are not afraid or embarrassed to beg for what they need. To understand that the secret to the kingdom of God is in Mark ten fourteen, When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He hides from outsiders but reveals to those who earnestly seek him like a child. He intentionally hides from the self-sufficient and reveals to those with faith like a child on the inside. So this leads to my last point. Are you desperate for Jesus as Lord? Are you desperate for Jesus as we look at this last story? This story, Jesus is applying his own teaching when he's telling and teaching that you miss God's heart with your traditions and to think that anything outside can make you unclean because then now he goes to the people considered unclean in the Gentile country of Tyre and Sidon, that the Gentiles were called the unclean dogs by the Jews. And this Gentile woman, without any right to approach a Jewish rabbi, doesn't care. It says immediately she invites herself over, and Jesus is trying to hide. And she keeps begging and begging and begging and won't stop. She, she falls at his feet, as we saw in previous chapters like Jairus or the demon-possessed man. And he begs her, begs Jesus because of the sake of her, her little daughter. And Jesus then gives the seemingly harsh reply that we talked about. And it actually encouraged this woman to keep asking and asking. What the religious leaders and disciples don't understand and call a non-parable, this desperate gentile woman does understand this parable and responds in faith. That she's the first to understand Jesus' parables. And then she hears Jesus' word by responding within the parable. That, that she one-ups Jesus' parable in the ultimate comeback. That this is the mic drop of that century. That, that she was humble in not demanding her rights. That Jesus is saying that this gospel, this is going to the, the, the Jews first. And she's not demanding that she's first. But then she's persistent Begging Jesus that, Jesus, your, your, your leftovers are more than enough for me. Have you ever eaten a, a child's leftovers? It's, it's pretty disgusting if you're not the parent, unless the food is that amazing. Are you that desperate? The only reference to Jesus that addresses him in Lord as Lord in the whole book of Mark is here. It's from a Gentile woman. This idea that Jesus is Lord is prevailing over the whole New Testament, over the demonic, and here, he doesn't even have to appear to heal or cast out. You know, he doesn't have to go there. You just have to ask him. He just has to say the word. And, and this is the only time that Jesus works remotely in Mark, this remote healing. In the other gospels, in, in Gentiles, he does remote work also. But it's interesting. He only does those remote healings for Gentiles. Not the promised people. Not the churched people. Not the religious people. And not the people in his hometown. It, it's, do we have that kind of faith to, to even believe we can skip normal steps required by society because Jesus is Lord. Do we ever pray like this? Just, just for a crumb. That, you know, Jesus, you don't even have to physically come because uh, you're, we know you, your power is greater than what we think should happen. That, that Jesus can go out of his way here to leave his mission to the Jewish people just as seemingly to, to test and to touch this Gentile woman's life. There doesn't seem to be any purpose for his visit here as he leaves right after except to have this encounter with this Gentile woman that was considered too dirty. What is the difference with us nowadays? If I, if I think about where I'm at, why does it feel like I'm, I'm often too proud to beg that that in actuality, we're not even worthy to gather crumbs from his floor, let alone sit at his table. When was the last time you begged? I think I asked this last time, and I realized I should have at least thought more to flesh this out. When was the last time you actually begged in your life? Recently, I was in line. Uh, well, actually, I got there early, um, but then I, I waited to the side to just watch the line that continued to grow at Popeye's for their chicken sandwich that just came out. And it was interesting when they ran out to see how angry people were and how people started to beg. Like they they, they just had to try this Popeye's chicken sandwich. How many tried it, by the way? Okay, a few of you guys. Okay. Um, How many of us have begged for things, but they seem to be very trivial things? You know, how many of us have begged for concert tickets or to watch some type of show? But what would it be like to beg for eternal things? To to understand his word? to, To love as he loves? For more of his spirit that he promises to give to those who ask? You know, like the disciples and the crowds... That the Gentiles are the ones that seem to understand more. And, and, and like the disciples, we fail to understand who Jesus really is. The eternal, all-sufficient creator, controller of the world, and abundant giver of life and everything good that you possibly could ever want. That Jesus is Lord over all of that. And yet we fail to beg for just a crumb from him. Is is it that our hearts are hardened? Do we have just too many distractions? Do we have, is it our pride that, that we don't like our comfort being shaken up? That we just don't like the ways that we think being disturbed, that we just want our own way? You know, this is beautifully symbolized in communion as uh, Pastor James uh, linked together last week about how Jesus gave all power away to be broken for us. That, That his broken body was so that we could be forgiven of our sins and even have the power to live for him. That he became a crumb for us by breaking his body so that we can all feed on him. And even a little... Of Jesus is more than enough. The one thing that Willy Wonka clip didn't get right was, in, in our context, was that though God was similarly, I think, uh, testing for a childlike faith like Willy Wonka did, but the difference was the test wasn't for this test of morality like this little boy to do good on his own. But it's like looking at this woman, the test is for who will. Beg for Jesus as Lord, and further, who will keep asking? Who has the faith to keep asking for more of His Spirit? So we beg, even for the crumbs of Jesus. The answer is not to do good on our own, but to desperately seek Him. Think about the story of Jacob, that he, when wrestling with God in Genesis 32, he won't let go unless God will bless him. You think of the story with Elisha and, and one of the kings who he, he tells to strike the ground with the arrows and he only struck three times. And he was saying, if you had struck more, how much more God would have done? Do we have faith? How, how would you feel to be like this woman, to be commended by the God of the universe? In Mark 15 28, that gives a little more details. Jesus says in this story, how, oh woman, great is your faith. Some look at what's said in Mark, and, and it should actually more accurately say that Jesus said, what an answer, that Jesus marveled at faith. And it's like when he tells stories of... a actual parables like in Luke 18 of this persistent widow that links to how we should pray audaciously or impudently or uh, thinking about Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus says, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if we're too self-reliant or prideful to be this bold or inappropriate or too bashful to, to interrupt, then, then we're left as outsiders that we hear but we don't hear and we see and we don't see. Why would a God who knows everything, why would he marvel at our belief Or unbelief. Have you ever thought about that? What kind of God is this? Why why would he care? Why wouldn't he just want us to work for him and do what he wants? Why isn't that the greatest commandment? Why does God care so much about our hearts being close to him? You know, we see that Jesus, as we close, he's fulfilling here. What we know from Hebrews, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And whoever believes, you don't believe that just that he exists, but that he rewards those. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. That, that Jesus fulfills all of the cleanliness or uncleanliness laws, so we don't need to try anymore, because we never could. Jesus is Lord Over all the laws, over all the rituals, over all sin, and over the power of sin, and over the sting of sin that is death. Jesus is Lord, and he wants your heart. So as we close, Luke 7, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little. Do you see that you've been forgiven much? That we we love much because we've been forgiven much. That Jesus wants us to believe he's continually testing and teasing out our faith through the circumstances of our lives. That when Jesus seems seemingly uncaring or silent, he's just testing your faith to see whether you will beg for him or more Netflix or just more distraction from your problems. Will you beg for Jesus? Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is Lord. Will you beg for more of him? even just a crumb. Please pray with me.